This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 18th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court recently heard the latest high-profile challenge to the Affordable Care Act. One of the key issues is whether or not the individual mandate to secure health insurance, with its penalties now reduced to zero, is really a mandate at all. Cato's Ilya Shapiro and Michael Cannon detail what happened at oral argument. Well, the first thing you have to understand, it's not a redo of National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius, the the 2012 case where famously or infamously uh, John Roberts transmogrified the individual mandate, uh, recharacterizing it as a a tax to uphold it under the Constitution's taxing power. Um, When Congress zeroed out that tax or penalty, uh, as you wish, Uh, in 2017, it didn't touch the rest of the law. So the severability question, what lawyers talk about with when uh, a particular provision is constitutionally defective, how much of the rest of the law has to fall, that analysis is very different. So you come to this case. First, like any case, there has to be standing. Uh, And that brings kind of a metaphysical question of if you have a command without any enforcement of it, who is hurt? Can anyone, whether the state's bringing the the claim here or the individual plaintiffs uh, who feel that they are commanded, even if the IRS or or anybody else is not going to go after them for violating that claim, uh, do they have standing? Then if they do, and this is sort of tied into the same question, really, uh, is whether the mandate is now uh, unconstitutional because it can no longer be justified under the taxing power. And... uh, with NFIB's precedent that it can't be justified as a regulation under the Commerce Clause, then shouldn't it fall? And then finally, if if it should fall, then how much of the rest of the law has to fall with it? Uh, and again, as I said, because Congress changed the law and it's been working for good or ill, and we're not uh, judging effectiveness or efficiency or anything like that, uh, as Justice uh, Alito said uh, during oral argument, well, you know, we thought this was key to the whole plane, but the, this part fell out and the plane's still flying. Um, so anyway, how much of the rest of the law has to fall? And my brief that I filed with Josh Blackman for, for Cato uh, basically says, well, yes, the mandate does have to fall. It's still a command. Uh, but the individual plaintiffs who are buying insurance on the private non-Obamacare exchange market uh, are harmed. And so certain regulations that uh, make that insurance more costly should be uh, circumscribed, at least for them. Uh, Michael, how strong are the policy claims of the people challenging Obamacare this time around? So by if by policy claims, I don't think they're making any actual policy claims. They're making a claim of standing. They're making a claim that under NFIB, uh, the mandate is now uh, still there and unconstitutional and that the entire law should disappear. Um, I had that would uh, certainly be disruptive. I have disagreements with both the plaintiffs in this case and uh, Ilya and Josh's brief over, you know, standing over whether the mandate still exists and the severability questions as well. But the impact of what the Texas plaintiffs want would be fairly dramatic. It would be disruptive to take away the entire uh, Affordable Care Act or really Obamacare. Uh, I think that's a more uh, uh, apt descriptor because uh, Congress passed the Affordable Care Act, but then President Obama and the judiciary have amended it so many times outside of the legislative process that it's not really the Affordable Care Act anymore. Justice Scalia called it SCOTUS care. But we have to remember, while it would be disruptive, uh, uh, first, 
the uh, the claims of disruption are wildly inflated. And the premise of these claims is that the law is unpopular. You know, if the court overturned Obamacare, then states would no longer have this 90% federal match for their uh, Obamacare Medicaid expansion populations. And so states would either get from the federal government only 50 to 80% of the cost of covering those people, or they would have to co- cover 100% of the cost. If we assume that those people are going to lose coverage, what we're implicitly saying is that Obamacare is not popular because states don't want to pay the cost. Uh, similarly, if you look at the private or quote unquote private insurance side of Obamacare, yes, the subsidies would disappear, but that doesn't uh, the subsidies for people who are buying coverage in the Obamacare exchanges and 80 to 90 percent of the people in those exchanges are getting subsidies to help them purchase those very expensive health insurance plans. If those subsidies disappear, though, insurance companies can't automatically uh throw these people out of their plans. Uh, There are rules in place that say that uh, you can't throw them out for several months. There'd be time for Congress or states to respond. Uh, Many states really wouldn't have to respond except to subsidize those premiums to the extent that they feel it's necessary to do so because many states took Obamacare's regulations, the same regulations that the Texas plaintiffs want the courts to overturn, and put them into their own state law. And so we're hearing claims that 20 million people would lose their coverage uh, and it would be that disruptive. It's not going to be that disruptive. And to the extent it is disruptive, what that tells us is that this is an unpopular law. And let's not forget that in 2014, this law was extremely disruptive to lots of Americans who wanted to stay in their health plans. Barack Obama told them they had a right to stay in their health plans. They would uh, be able to stay in their health plans. Uh, Obamacare threw them out of those plans. And overturning Obamacare would undo that disruption and allow people to buy those uh, sorts of affordable and even more secure plans again. So, uh, Ilya, at oral argument, um, there seemed to be quite a bit of skepticism about, in particular, severability as an issue. That is, if this provision goes down, it all goes down because it's uh, not severable. What were uh, what were some what were some of the arguments surrounding that? Yeah, I don't think there are going to be there's going to be even one vote for invalidating the entirety of the ACA. Um, uh, and so those who during the the Barrett hearings were saying that uh, uh, then judge now Justice Barrett was all that stood uh, between tens of millions of Americans losing their coverage were either being disingenuous or, or not understanding the case or both. Um, uh, Ju- Chief Justice Roberts uh, said that there should not be, um, uh, that the mandate is severable from the rest of the law. Um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, said that uh, the way that our severability argument works, I agree with you, speaking to the the lawyer defending the House of Representatives, who happened to be Don Verrilli, who was defending Obamacare as the Solicitor General eight years ago. So that's at least five votes, and and uh, others didn't telegraph uh, their intentions so clearly. Uh, Alito did, as a, with the with the plain analogy that I referenced before. But uh, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a single vote to overturn the, the the whole thing. There could be one or two votes. I'm thinking Gorsuch. Thomas on um, uh, crafting remedies specific to uh, the individual plaintiffs along the lines of my brief, maybe in some sort of concurrence. But uh, it's it's very clear that um, from argument that the, the, there's probably five votes for standing and there's at least six, uh, probably uh, all nine for some kind of severability. So what of the, the claim that 
an individual mandate with a penalty of zero dollars is not, as a practical matter, a command. Right. Well, it's it's Chief Justice Roberts uh, raised this question. You know, what in a future employer, when when you're asked to check a box of whether you've ever violated federal law, what are you supposed to do? Because there is that still that provision on the books that says you have to buy uh, insurance, and there's no longer the quote unquote choice, as Roberts framed it eight years ago, of instead paying a tax. There, there's no uh, choice at all now. Uh, if you're being a kind of an economist or you know homo economicus and rational behavior, you just you know you don't comply with the command and there's no no practical consequences. But at the same time, those who want to be law-abiding or who have that you know hypothetical box in their future um, still you know it's it's there and it's unusual. There's there's no precedent for this sort of thing because we've never had kind of a command upheld through the taxing power and the tax zeroed out before. So this isn't kind of just like a, a hortatory aspirational thing, like buy war bonds. Th- that was not a command. That was kind of a inspiring people to, to do that. Um, but uh, we had several hypotheticals from Justice Thomas, from Chief Justice Roberts, if there's a mask mandate or a, all, all sorts of things that, that could be there. Um, it's, it's a bit of a metaphysical question, but still, uh, in the law, if something is on the books, then, then it's a command, even if the government is not currently enforcing it. Michael? So my take on the questions that uh, the Chief Justice and Clarence Thomas and others were asking about standing is a little different. All you have to do to get into court is for one plaintiff to establish standing, and there are many possible ways you could establish uh, standing, which, which means you, you have to demonstrate a concrete and particularized injury that you will suffer because of what, of the, what the government is doing. And so I thought that uh, Chief Justice Roberts' question about um, if an employer asks you if you've ever broken the law, um, whether that would be, um, uh, uh, whether you could answer that honestly, that was an interesting sort of hypothetical and potential basis for establishing standing. But really, I, I don't think that indicates that he sees that there is an injury here. I mean, uh, usually what employers offer is, have you uh, ask is, have you ever been convicted of something? Um, rather than have you ever broken the law, because if they asked if you've ever broken the law, I mean, all of us have broken the law. All of us have sped on the highway. All of us have, uh, and so, so I, I don't see that as uh, as indicative of where he's going to go on standing. Uh, I think that uh, the the they were just doing due diligence, um, asking all the questions they have to ask about standing, and and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to grant it. Now, on the question of uh, is there still a mandate? You know, I, I think that the most useful way to think about this is that a mandate is a combination of two things. A command that the, where the government's telling people you have to do something plus a penalty if they don't do it. With the Affordable Care Act, you had both a command, buy health insurance, you had a penalty. If you don't buy health insurance and you're not exempt from the penalty uh, for the, these reasons, then you have to pay a penalty. When Congress zeroed out the penalty, as Ilya says, all of a sudden, we have this unique situation where the government is telling people to do something, but imposing no legal consequences if they don't. To my mind, that means there's no mandate anymore. Uh, any more than there would be a mandate if Congress passed a two sentence, a two word law that said buy broccoli, or laws that say buy war bonds. Justice Breyer was asking all sorts of questions uh, about, uh, you know, if we go through the federal code, how many of these. Uh, these uh, these precatory provisions will there be urging the populace to do something, even using the word shall, like Obamacare does, 
but without any legal consequence. And so I, I don't, uh, so I, I think that's the most useful way to look at this. And when you look at it this way, what it says is that, you know, there is no more mandate here to challenge because there is no legal consequence to someone not obeying that command, uh, which is, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, probably won't go this way. Uh, uh, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a a, a strong majority. Uh, well, I was going to say it probably won't be unanimous, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a strong majority that tosses this unstanding because there's just no concrete, imminent, uh, particularized injury that anyone's going to suffer under that provision of the law right now. And uh, I, I might also disagree with Ilya. I think this is an ex- uh, a, an attempt to relitigate NFIB. I think that's what the Texas plaintiffs are trying to do. I think they're really trying to turn John Roberts. Uh, opinion in NFIB against him because a lot of people are very uh, still very sore about that opinion. I know I am, uh, and I think that the Chief Justice no- noticed this. He seemed very annoyed with the plaintiffs during oral arguments, and I think it's because he realizes that this was just a a, a too cute by half attempt to turn his own uh, his own opinion in NFIB against him. Um, and and one other uh, observation. If Republicans had wanted to do that, they maybe could have done it, but this was not the way. In order to turn that opinion against him, uh, what Republicans in Congress would have had to do is not zero out the penalty, but increase the amount of the mandate penalty to the point where it is punitive, to the point where John Roberts could no longer say, oh, well, this is just a choice that the, the Congress is giving people. This is a this is a punitive penalty that is supposed to compel behavior. and." Uh, under the, the rationale that he used in NFIB to view that penalty as a tax would no longer apply. The pro- and then maybe John Roberts would have overturned it. The problem there is that also would have been opportunistic, but uh, even e- an even bigger problem would be that, that that would have required Republicans in Congress to increase the mandate penalty, to make Obamacare's mandate more punitive. And politically, there was just no way that they were going to do that. Unfortunately, I mean, it's fine with me that they zeroed out the mandate penalty, but unfortunately, the Texas Attorney General, uh, uh, as I say, uh, was a little too cute by half in trying to use that change to turn John Roberts' reasoning against him. I don't think it's going to work. Well, I, I agree with that, Michael. I, I think your tweet that this was a trolling of uh, John Roberts was was apt, uh, and I think he probably deserved that trolling with what he did uh, uh, eight years ago. Um, uh, I just hope that you're, you're not giving uh, the Democrats, whenever they uh, regain unified control of government, any ideas about uh, you know more more coercive taxes and mandates and and what have you. Well, if they did triple the mandate penalty, then you could mount a serious constitutional challenge under NFIB. Ilya Shapiro directs the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael Cannon directs health policy studies at Cato. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.